All right. Thank you. I'll just go in there. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 17. A couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, whatever it was, I'd asked uh, Jesse to share with us from the Word in regards to what is, what is the church's role in the believer's life and the counseling process. One of the lessons in our discipleship counseling class on Tuesday nights that we spent a couple of weeks unpacking was this, uh, the biblical process of change. You think about how we just ended another year and we're starting a new year. One of the things that ought to, that we ought to contemplate is change for the glory of Christ, how we as a church need to change and conform to the Scriptures, how we as individual believers as well would be involved in the growth and maturity process, changing into the image of Christ. And so I thought that we might take a couple of weeks, I don't know how long it will take us to go through, but just to, to, to think through the biblical process of change, I figured we'd take some adult Sunday school classes to even get into a little, little further than what I've been able to get with the, the folks on uh, Tuesday nights. When you think about reconciliation, what is the first term that might come to mind when you think of reconciliation? I was going to have the dry erase board up here, but I can't find the easel. I think it's out in the shed. I think it's getting back together. Back together? Okay. Huh? Right with God, okay. Forgiveness. Confession. Confession. Anything else? You know, repentance. Uh, you know, Jason mentioned, uh, I think it was Jason, was it, it just said forgiveness, and um, that's one of the terms we're going to look at. We're going to look at um, confession with our repenting and whatnot, but before we even introduce those terms and think to unpack those terms, we're going back a little bit further. So join me in John 17. John 17, you ought to remember what is here. What is the uh, climax, the, the pinnacle in John 17? We've got the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And you might think about all the things that Jesus could have, and you might suggest should have prayed about, about all the glorious things and majestic things he could pray about. Why did he choose the one thing that he did pray about? Join me in uh, verse 13, John 17, verse 13. This is Jesus praying, but now I come to you, he's speaking to his Father. These things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, there are a lot of elements and individual items in that prayer, that of um, our testimony with the world, our joy with the Lord, our personal sanctification in the truth. But you'll notice that one of the, the, the primary feature of this prayer that Jesus prayed for, that's expounded upon in verse 21, that they may be one. Jesus is praying for the unity of His beloved ones, that that would be the supreme demonstration of a sanctified life. Why would Jesus give such a high dignity to unity of all things? Now, think about unity and the way that it's been hijacked by well-meaning but misguided philanthropists who just, why can't we all just get along? You know, it's, it's unity at the expense of doctrine. And when you think about the ecumenical movement and all these initiatives that fly today under the banner of unity that do little for the gospel and usually end, end up undermining it, its very meaning. That is not what Jesus is praying for when he prays for, for unity. Paul writes in Ephesians 4 that we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul, too, like Jesus, is not calling for ecumenism, peace at the expense of truth. He's talking about the corporate witness of the local church. When the local church is united and at peace within itself, those who are at peace with God and peace with each other, God's glorified. And the gospel is commended to the watching world. So the question is this. If unity and peace are so vital to the witness of the church, you look at the context there in, in, in Jesus' prayer, we do this before a watching world. If they're so crucial to the witness of the church, their absence is so much a part of life, how can we maintain it? How can we maintain unity? There's a lot of discord, a lot of friction, a lot of disunity. Part of living in a fallen world is that if, if part of the image of God in us is that we are relational beings, interacting with people is not an option. It's part of life, right? We interact with people at work. We interact with people on the phone. You know, the person that charged the credit card twice when they should have just swiped it once. Uh, we b deal with a lot of buffoonery people that are incompetent. You know, all these people that we interact with all the time. 
And so there is, there is the need in a fallen world to make sure that we pursue relationships in a biblical way so that they are reconciled relationships, that there is not the discord and the friction. Church, the church is to model reconciliation. Since we are those who have been reconciled to God, we are to exemplify it. We are told in the book of Hebrews that we are to, in, in chapter 10, we are to stimulate one another towards love and good deeds. So we're, we're even to be involved as a tool of sanctification in each other's lives in seeking reconciliation. Um, Pastor Joey knew that we were doing this biblical process of change and discipleship counseling and he, uh, he gave me a quote to, to steal because he, he was reading from uh, Bonhoeffer's Life Together. And in, in Bonhoeffer's book on pages uh, 118 and 119, he says this. He says, the most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. Think with me for a moment as I, as I expand upon this quote from Bonhoeffer, because he's putting his finger on the issue. What we've been talking about together on Tuesday nights is how that it is only Christians who play with a full deck, because we, we respond to divine revelation that teaches that man is not just body, but what else? Spirit. We are, God created man a living soul, though he's confined to a body of flesh. We have a dual nature. We are, we are material and we're immaterial. So it's only a Christian who's dealing with a full deck. And that's what Bonhoeffer is putting his finger on, that the simplest Christian who lives under the cross of Christ knows more than the uh, psychoanalyst who tries to suggest why man does what he does. To continue on, he says, he says the greatest psycho psychological insight, ability, and experience cannot grasp this one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are, but it does not know the godlessness of man. So it also does not know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the, in the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare to be a sinner. The psychiatrist must first search my heart, and yet he never plums its ultimate depth. The Christian brother knows when I come to him, here is a sinner like myself, a godless man who wants to confess and yearns for God's forgiveness. The psychiatrist views me as if there were no God. The brother views me as I am before the judging and merciful God in the cross of Jesus Christ, unquote. I thought that Bonhoeffer kind of captured what uh, some of the discussions have been around discipleship counseling and the centrality of the local church to our sanctification process. So let's start thinking through the whole process of, of change um, 
And I thought I started in the beginning in this slide, but I, I didn't. Uh, let's think about some specific concepts. Oh, thank you, Chris. Yes, I do have handouts. Thank you, bro. Take a one and pass them around. And that'll give me a chance to move my notes around to the right order here. All right. So some specific concepts. Guilt. You might wonder, okay, Pastor Parker, we were, uh, you said we were going to talk about reconciliation. We were going to talk about things like forgiveness and repentance and confession. Well, I also told you that we had to back up and start from uh, kind of the beginning. And that's where we start with this concept of guilt. As I do not, thank you. If you wanted to, you've been with me in John 17, flip back to Psalm 51. We'll be there in just a moment. When you are dealing with unredeemed man who is in rebellion against God, who wants to minimize his sin, who wants to um, excuse the existence of God, because to excuse the existence of God is to um, not have to admit that we are sinful creatures. You parents that are here know exactly what illustration I'm going for. You catch your kid doing something wrong, and the first thing they want to do is uh, either blame if there's a sibling around, or blame the dog, right, Wendy? <laughs> or blame the dog. I didn't do it. They either want to blame or, or simply deny it. I didn't do it. It's like I caught you red-handed, but a, a rebel against God is blind. They're decept the, the heart is deceitful. And this is the society we live. Our society wants to reinvent guilt. And much of the way they reinvent it is in the psychological world is that there is such a, to them there's a, such a thing as false guilt. And that it, we've got we've to unpack your psyche to find out what in your uh, social influence structure, who did you wrong? Was it, was it your dad or your grandma or, or uh, who messed you up? And we could point to so many examples in society. To them, uh, it's not a sin model, but a disease model uh, that uh, you, you need some therapy. So there's, there's this great effort to eliminate guilt. What does the Bible teach about guilt? Here's what the Bible teaches about guilt is that not only is there um, no such thing as false guilt. The Bible teaches us guilt is a reality. It is a fact. We are guilty. Period. End of story. You could go back to Genesis 3 if you wanted, but I told you to turn to Psalm 51. But think with me through this. So, 
if there's none who seeks after God, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible instructs us that we are guilty before God. We have transgressed God's law. So even if, the, uh, if some of the effects of sin that we experience in life are not due to personal sin, sin is still the answer because we live in a fallen world and we are sinners. So we are guilty. Here's how you really start thinking when you, you know, that same person that you used to talk with who's always deflecting the, the, the reason why they acted the way they did was so-and-so or the minimizing uh, that it's really not that bad. When you start seeing them jump up in the judge's chair with the judge to accuse themselves, you know what? I was wrong. I did sin. It's like, it's like a Jekyll and Hyde thing. It's like, this, guy, this person's different. This isn't the same person. There's, there's been a work of grace in the heart. Cause that's where we find David in Psalm 51. You notice how that there is no desire to excuse, no um, um, no attempt to cover up anymore, which he used to do. Notice in Psalm 51, we are told in the heading of this psalm that this is the psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. But that's not all. The story didn't end there. He didn't just sleep with another man's wife. But what did he do as well? I heard kill. Yeah, he, he killed the husband, sent him off into war. Um, so that dreadful web of lies and deception and, and sin but God breaks him. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. So what's the basis of forgiveness that we're going to get to? Probably not this week. It'll probably be next week. The basis of Christian forgiveness is the mercy of God. He, sa- he repeats three times in that one verse. Be gracious according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak, blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden parts you'll make me know wisdom. Purify me with, with hyssop, I will, shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. We could go on, but I think you get the point. The basis of what David is pleading for is mercy, withholding what we deserve. What did David deserve? Death. David 
deserve death. How's that for alliteration? David deserved death. We want to be dealt with according to grace and, and mercy. But notice how it, it's not apart from gut honesty about his sin. You know, the admission of guilt. I, I know my transgressions, my sins ever before me. Now, defined, guilt is a legal liability or culpability to punishment. And if, if, if we wanted to take the time, we would, we would go ahead and, and, and talk. The, the term guilt properly denotes the fact, not the feeling that often accompanies. There were times in David's life that he did not feel guilty. But he was guilty. That's the fact of the matter. Negative feelings are a result of guilt. So we can be truly guilty but not feel guilty. I, I gave this illustration. You know, you take a guy who slows down from 90 miles an hour to 35 miles per hour in a 15 mile an hour zone. You know, there's, there's guilt, there's culpability. might not feel it. So when it comes to guilt, we need to do a David. Deal with it. Deal with it. Never minimize the, the fact of guilt. When, when we came to faith in Christ, when God showed us our sin and gave us a holy hatred for our sin, He changed our default setting. Default setting as a rebel against God used to be what? Either blame shift or minimize or denial. Now we automatically assume it. Yep, you called it. I sinned. That's our automatic default setting as a believer. Well, I don't know where I sinned, but there must be sin in it somewhere because it involves me as a sinner. It's universal because sin is universal. It's serious because God is a holy judge and it will remain even if it is explained away even if the effects are, are, are lessened and you don't get your just dessert, and where guilt remains, punishment is inevitable. So, we can never minimize the fact of guilt or the feeling of guilt or even us underestimate the effects of guilt. Now, what speaks to us about our guilt? God's given us a gift, a special tool in the heart of man. Bingo. Next slide. A warning light that reveals guilt. Now, Several scriptures we could go to that emphasize the importance of a clean conscience. We want to live up to date with our conscience right before God and before man. That's why we celebrate the Lord's table every other week as a reminder of what we ought to be regularly engaging in. Every day of our lives, we ought to seek to maintain a clear conscience. That, and that, that plays a huge role in this whole reconciliation process. 
that we're current with our wife or husband, that we're current with our kids or other relatives, that we're current with our co-workers, we're current with fellow believers. The Scriptures emphasize the importance of maintaining a clean conscience. God honors quick and complete action when it comes to our, our sin. But you know, there are issues that come into play when we talk about the conscience of man. Scripture talks about how that you can have a seared conscience. That's dangerous. If God gave us a gift called the conscience that just kind of goes off, it tells us something's wrong. Houston, we've got a problem. We're not going to, we don't want to be an idiot that tries to silence it and say, shut up, you idiot, you don't know what you're talking about. God gave it to us. But it can be seared. It can be taken advantage of. It can be untrained. Our conscience needs to be continually trained to understand the whole counsel of God. Uh, One of my great joys in ministry is trying to uh, help people re-educate their conscience. Those who have been to legalistic churches so that they can retrained that, wow, this isn't a sin issue. This, this doesn't violate Scripture. Uh, so I shouldn't have to feel bad because I listen to uh, music uh, that's got a syncopated beat or uh, I use a different translation of the Bible or any other dress, you know, all these legalistic uh, paraphernalia. Freeing somebody from a legalistic conscience because it's untrained. Your conscience is only as good as the information it receives And if you are listening to bad stuff, you're going to have a bad conscience. You know, it can get to the point where it's, uh, there's a third one, uh, where it's overactive. Sometimes we believe that a desire, a thought, or an action is morally wrong when the Bible doesn't actually condemn it. So where'd we get it from? You know, in those cases, we're required to act according to our conscience, Romans 14, 23. If you do something, but it's not of faith, it's sin. But we need to constantly seek to retrain our conscience according to biblical standards, not worldly traditions or man's traditions. It can be overactive. You know, another application uh, to this is uh, in, in talking with folks that are, you know, Saved one minute, lost the next. Uh, constantly questioning, well, am I, am I saved? Some of my uh, brothers in Christ that have, have battled with this, I said, you need to nail this down once and for all because you're going you're gonna to be floundering the rest of your Christian life until you nail down that you know that you know Him. Nail it down so that you can silence an overactive conscience. The Bible also speaks about just having a, a biblical conscience. What is a biblical conscience? It's, it's clean and clear. Clean and clear, up to date with God and others. Rightly related horizontally, rightly related vertically. Now, right before I move on from the guilt, one other connection I want to make in our minds here as we think about 
guiltworthiness and how that when we came to Christ, God kind of reset the default setting. Not to deny or to blame, but to own up to our sin, our guiltworthiness. When somebody comes to you, a brother, a sister in Christ, out of love to stimulate you towards love and good deeds, our first response ought not to be, well, no, I didn't do it. I'm not guilty. Our first response ought to be to, well, yeah, you know what? I, let's, let's look at this and try to figure out where I, where I screwed up, where I sinned, you know, because there's got to be some sin in it somewhere. So we start by thinking about guilt. And the psalmist instructs us how that he's, he's pleading the mercy of God and he's owning up, making no excuse. His confession is, is one of, yeah, I sinned against Bathsheba, I sinned against Uriah, but they don't even enter the picture here. Lord, I sinned against you. You only I have sinned. And we'll, uh, we'll mention that in just a moment uh, in, in repentance, which is our second term we want to think about in this whole reconciliation process. We start off by recognizing the universal culpability, our guiltworthiness before Christ. And we move to repentance. There's a lot to be said about repentance. What, is, what does repentance mean? What, is, what does it mean to repent? To turn. Okay, so... Um, a 180 is a great way to define what repentance is. We're going one direction. Before Christ, when you, when you repented of your sin, God stopped you in your tracks. You owned up to your wretchedness, fallen short of His glory, and you started going the, you know, from serving self to serving the Savior, from serving sin to righteousness. And so it's a 180, heads in the opposite direction. Repentance is a necessary component, not just of our, our sanctification process, our life as Christians, but in coming to Christ. So it's crucial in both ends. In genuine conversion, that people repent, that we're willing to turn from everything. Now, we're not going to know, when, when you first come to Christ, you're not going to know everything that's sin, are you? He's going to start unpacking, wow, I didn't know that was wrong, I didn't know that. You know, he's going to start unpacking a life of repentance. Unsaved people must turn from sin, which is the state of self-rule that they've lived as their own Lord and Master. Reminder here, insert uh, to the discussion here, 2 Corinthians 5.15. And again, stop me if we're needing to connect any dots here. 2 Corinthians 5.15, we're told that He, Christ, died for all so that... Here's the purpose clause. Why did He die for us? So that they who live, those that He's given new life to, those who are new creatures in Christ would no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. There's that 180. 
Lord, I used to have these grand plans for my life that I cast at your feet at the foot of the cross. I used to have my own desires, my own pleasures, my own sins. Here they are. Repentance begins the Christian life, but you know what? It continues the Christian life. Repentance remains continually necessary after conversion. You insert again what we just read, what we read earlier in the class from Psalm 51. We're going to need to drink deeply of repentance throughout our sojourn here in this fallen world with our flesh, our unredeemed humanness. Saved people have to turn from sins which are the specific symptoms of the lingering disease called the flesh. That is what Paul refers to in Romans 7. Any, any part of our unredeemed humanness that we're constantly turning from. So, we are repenting not for position. We're already right with God through Christ. This is not a performance mentality. So, it's not for position. It's not to get reunited to Christ because we were never ununited to Him. This is a 1 John 1.9 moment for communion, for fellowship, that I just did what was wrong to the one I've pledged my allegiance and my love to. All true human repentance has reference to a turning from the state or occurrence of sin and turning to God for forgiveness and renewal. So, so we've moved from guilt to repentance. Repentance is part of this reconciliation process, both with God and others. Scriptures often allude that you can do this wrong. They allude to the fact that you can do this repenting wrong. We're good at doing things wrong, are we not? At least I am. And so even what the Bible calls for repentance, we can have a false repentance. What Scripture does that take you to? A wrong repentance. I see the wheels turning and the smoke Ascending out of your ears as you think. How about 2 Corinthians 7? I've still got mine open because I set it down on the pew in front of me. 2 Corinthians 7, verse number 10. Notice, the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but, notice the contrast here, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrate yourselves to be innocent in the matter. There is a biblical repentance which accomplishes the will of God, and there's a substitute. Yes, Ray? Is it a worldly remorse, 
I think, I think uh, Judas would probably be a, the poster child for false repentance. What did he do after the fact? After he had sold Christ, went, threw the money back, he well, felt bad. It wasn't that which leads to regeneration. We ought to be keenly suspect of our own sanctification, should we not? We think, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really, you know, 2014 was a good year. Really grew leaps and bounds. If any man thinks he stand, take heed lest he, lest he fall. Be suspect of how much you've really grown. Be suspect of your repentance. Well, Lord, am I turning to you just because I am tasting of the displeasure? Or am I really broken? Am I racked in my soul that this, is, this dishonors you? We ought to be suspect about it. The... Uh, I, I think that you can even go too far on that, though. You look at the, you, you read much of the Puritans, and you're going to find that there can be an unhealthy amount of introspection. Yes, we ought to be suspect of repentance and ask the Lord, Lord, show me anywhere that my repentance is defective and lacking. It must get somewhere. It must get to the point of, of rejoicing in his cleansing and his and his forgiveness. So let's think about what 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 would it look like? What 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 does real repentance look like? It's, I think it's got some elements to it. That's why I gave them to you. These three C's: comprehending, confessing, and choosing or forsaking. If we want to repent, if we want to do a 180, if we want to turn from there must be that comprehension aspect. We must understand the truth relevant to our sin and our Savior before we can repent. We cannot repent in ignorance, in other words. The Greek term most often translated repentance is metanoia, denoting that there is a change of mind. We must get the facts straight. We must have biblical intake. God must teach us something. So there must be that comprehensive nature. And there also needs to be that, that confessing. The twofold nature of the inward confession is revealed in the meaning of the Greek term homologeo, to say the same thing. We said that our... When we were rebels against God, there used to be this natural default setting in our lives, this that we want to minimize, we want to deny. That's not what repentance is. Repentance says the same thing. We must acknowledge to God the fact of our sin and agree with Him about the nature, how wicked it really was. Anybody like mysteries? Like watching mysteries or reading mysteries? Um, you, you come to the climax of a late night mystery on TV or in your bed as you're cuddled in uh, reading a good mystery book. 
and the frustrated detective screams at the primary suspect, Confess! Suspect squirms, trying to decide if the accuser really has... Is, is he bluffing or is he not? You know, kind of like when your kid comes to you, you, you catch them in the act of something, and they're trying, you can watch the cogs in their head rolling around because they want to... They know they've got to say something because you caught them in the act, but they don't know how much you know. How much have you figured out? Confession doesn't come easily. Most of us have never been interrogated by the police, but deep down we, we admit that we are guilty of breaking God's law. We, we know that we've fallen short. Fresh from our crime, we cringe before that accusing voice within. But if we ignore the voice for a couple of days, it, it, what do you usually do? You know, going back to the conscience and the guilt issue. I'll go away. You hush it long enough. It doesn't squawk so loud. But Christians enjoy God's presence. Don't, they don't deny that we're not going to gloss over our sin. We're going we're to do what David modeled for us there in Psalm 51. He wrote this psalm after the act of committing adultery with Bathsheba. After arranging the murder of her husband and after being confronted by the prophet Nathan. Why is it that initially David's repentance should have been suspect? Because it was only after Nathan came to him, said, you're the man. You know, when you first initially confront somebody in sin, you, you wish that they'd come to you. They say, yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah. David repeatedly accepts full responsibility, though. He owns up my sin, refusing to blame others or circumstances. Um, you know, when, when wrong is uncovered, God honors swift and thorough action, that thoroughness in our confession. Proverbs 28, 13, you cover your sin, what's he say? You won't prosper. But you confess and forsake. What's God give? What's the what's the rest of the proverb say? Mercy. That's where David started in the first verse of Psalm 51. According to your mercy, blotted out, Lord. So there's the comprehend, comprehending aspect, the the confessing, and the forsaking or the or the choosing. True repentance always includes a willful resolve to not repeat the sin. Now, have we often repeated the sin? Yes, we have. But there is that resolve that, Lord, by your Spirit's power, help me not to do this again. So, when we think about reconciliation that the church is to model, we think about guilt, we think about repentance. Oh, I guess I'm one slide behind. Where is it? There we go. What are the effects of repentance? You know, even though repentance is, is an inward thing, it takes place in the heart, 
and soul of man, it's ine- it inevitably leads to change in other areas of life. It's a total package deal. If it's not accompanied by some of these following effects, when appropriate, it is false and it fails to bring forgiveness. The, uh, I was going to mention a passage. Luke 3.8, John talks, uh, uh, remember John the Baptist, he says that there were many that were coming, they wanted to be baptized like he was doing, and he forbids them. Why? He said, no, you go first and bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Being reminded, 2 Corinthians 7, that my sorrow doesn't mean it's repentance. But is there a resolve in my heart for restitution? Suppose I was caught in the act of embezzling money. What would repentance look like? It would look like, well, I don't know how it's going to take me 10 years to repay back the debt, but there's this element of restitution to set things right. The repentant sinner must fulfill any obligations to the offended party. Willingness to accept the consequences. Suppose, I think I used this illustration a couple weeks ago with folks I was talking with about this. Somebody who practices a homosexual lifestyle that comes to faith in Christ and they had gotten AIDS, it doesn't mean that God's going to take away the AIDS, the consequences. So there's the restitution, the reconciliation, and uh, regret. We'll try to pick up there next week as we merge that into the response of forgiveness. Father, we are those who have experienced the infinite love of Christ through His atoning death, His forgiveness on Calvary. We pray that You would help us to be those who are recognizing our guilt in life, who utilize the conscience as a tool that you've given us for when things are not right, either between us and you or us and others, that it would motivate us towards repentance, thorough repentance, biblical repentance, and embracing of your forgiveness and the forgiveness of others. Help us at this church to be models of reconciliation, models of unity around your truth. We'll give you thanks and praise in Christ's precious name. Amen.